Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This week, we're once again visiting October 1997. A few weeks ago, we did Bad Blood 97, and this week, we're taking a look at the other side of the coin with WCW Halloween Havoc 1997. And they're kind of... I thought... Okay. Go ahead. I was just going to say, they're totally inverse shows. <laughs> yes, it, it's kind of shocking to me in the WWF, it seemed like everything had been changing from 1996 to 1997. In WCW here, it seems like absolutely nothing's changed since Fall Brawl 96. Yeah, and I mean, here we have a main event that no one in their right mind would ever want to see in a gimmick match that's completely played out to death, and an undercard that is just filled with wacky, nonsensical fun. And, and if you can compare that to Bad Blood, which had an incredibly fresh main event and an undercard that was just horrible. Yeah, this is, if I were going to show someone one show to sort of explain to them everything about WCW in this era, why it was great, why it was the most successful wrestling company in history, and then why it went out of business a few years later, this is a show I would show them because it's got the whole thing. Oh my god, you got amazing luchador matches, you got a cool undercard, you have characters that have no reason to even exist, much less be on pay-per-view. You have matches that genuinely make you question why they exist, and then you just have like all the biggest star names you can possibly think of. Yeah, it's a great mix of a little bit of everything. Uh, WSW was absolutely on fire at this point. This is... Their business peak is in 98, but 97 was the hottest they'd ever been to that point. They are just lapping the WWF and the ratings at this point. Um, I mean, we're two months from Hogan Sting, right? Yep, we are right on. We are, it's, that's really, really reaching its fever pitch at this point. Oh, man. And so is Sting's terrible hairstyle. Well, but the real Sting isn't on this show, I don't think. I know. That's my favorite thing is that real Sting had bad hair, but fake Sting had hilariously bad hair. Yeah, the Sting wigs were not good. <laughs> and um, I don't know, based on the wig Kane was wearing on Raw, uh, apparently they haven't improved much in the 20 years since. Why Why put a, 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 a wig back on him? We've seen him bald for so long, and he's so old. Just let him be bald. I don't think he looks right wearing the mask if he's bald. I think he needs the hair to wear the mask. That's a fair point. Maybe he should just wear the mask on top. Did he ever have real hair, though? Was it always a wig? No, no, no. It was always his real hair until they took it off the first time. That's okay. been confirmed. Okay. I was wondering about that because when the wig came off him, at that point I was like, wait, was this a lie the whole time? Could he always have been bald? That's right. They worked you good. Oof. So anyway, you know, the, the, this show centers around Roddy Piper and Hulk Hogan. They had been feuding on and off for a year at this point. Piper debuted at Halloween Havoc 1996. He showed up after Hogan beat Randy Savage. They had a way too long verbal confrontation where the pay-per-view literally cut out as they were still talking. Uh, they had a terrible match at Starcade. Piper won, um, and everybody thought he had won the title, except it turned out it was a non-title match, and they just had never mentioned that and ignored the fact that the title wasn't on the line. Um, and then they had a rematch at Super Brawl with the title on the line this time. 
Hogan won that one after interference from Randy Savage. And then at Uncensored, they were in a battle royal, Piper and the Horsemen against the NWO. The stipulation was if Piper's team won, he would get a cage match against Hogan. Piper's team lost, but here he gets a cage match against Hogan anyway. The entire arc of Roddy Piper in WCW was very, very confusing. And especially, like, it's, a, it's very lucky for them that their business was so incredibly hot. Because the thing with Piper where he doesn't actually win the title is the kind of thing that can kind of kill your business. Like, that's... It was such a slap to the face of fans. It's incredible that they just sort of, you know, zoomed right through that. Because it's... It doesn't really even... When, when people talk about the incredible missteps of WCW, that usually doesn't come up. But, I mean, like, at the time, like, if you go back and look at how people felt about it, like, it was every bit as bad as the finger poke of doom. It just didn't actually have the effect because the goodwill was so strong at the time. Yeah. I mean, just to, just to sort of explain it again, Piper and Hogan have a match. It's presented as if it's for the world title. Piper beats him. And Dusty Rhodes, even on commentary, goes, you're looking at the new world champion, I think. <laughs> and you got to remember it's just kind of like oh no he's not the champion and they don't even explain oh hogan's sneaky the title wasn't on the line they just moved on they never even sort of explained why the title wasn't on the line that the title wasn't on the line and for reference this is the first clean job hulk hogan does in wcw right yeah sounds right I'll just, I'll just, I'll assume yes. He may have done one as a babyface, but I'm sure that Hollywood Hogan hadn't done a clean job yet. No, he hadn't lost a match to this point. Yeah. So, like, here he is doing a clean job in the main event of Starcade. Everyone thinks it's for the title that Roddy Piper's finally won, and <laughs> sucker, it didn't matter. And the real story is just Hogan didn't want. The, 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 Kevin Sullivan wanted Piper to win the title, but Hogan, Hogan was talked into doing the job for Piper, but he wasn't going to lose the title to him. Ultimately, it was probably for the best because, I mean, who was going to get a good match out of Roddy Piper at this point in his career? Damn I, I sure not. He would have just lost it back to Hogan. It sold out as Super Brawl, but it would have been cool to see him with the title. For sure. Like, it's just one of those things where, like, it's always an asterisk in Roddy Piper's career that, like, he never won the big title, and he did. That's That's the problem. <laughs> Yeah. So in this match, the title is not on the line, although they really don't ever say that during the show either. No, they do not. <laughs> you just It's just sort of like, you know it now. I mean, you know when Buffer doesn't say this is for the heavyweight title, you know, okay, they're doing that again. I feel like they did a lot of that kind of stuff during this era where it was just like, well, if we just don't tell them it's for the title, but we let them think that, maybe you get a couple extra buys. Yeah. Um, I mean, this Hogan-Piper feud, despite the matches being absolutely terrible and a lot of the creative being shaky, all of these pay-per-views drew big. This one does 400,000 buys, which was WCW's biggest ever to this point and one of the biggest shows they ever did. It's super important to note, like Savage and Page are kind of having a pretty good feud too, though what this is like the tail end of it, right? Because it starts at like this Spring Stampede. This is the rubber match, yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
so like that's kind of a draw. There's really nothing else on this show that's drawn the card per se. But like it's you just got to remember that Piper and Hogan never really had that pay-per-view match when they were in WWE. They just yeah. never did. They did it on house show loops. They did it uh, on free TV on Saturday night's main events a little bit, but like neither one would job to the other. So this match never really happened. So this is still a big deal to people. Yeah, it's it's an iconic. I mean, it's one of the biggest feuds ever in wrestling, and the WWF hadn't properly delivered on it. So it, it, that's one of the things that really makes something a huge attraction is if people have been waiting for it for years and years. You know, in boxing, Mayweather and Pacquiao. You know, it seemed like it was never going to happen, and then it finally did, and that was the biggest pay-per-view in boxing history as a result. It's just funny that so much of WCW history in the 90s is basically just taking things that Vince didn't capitalize on and putting it on and then just milking it for all it's worth. Hogan and Flair. Hogan and Flair. Uh, I mean, obviously, like he couldn't have capitalized on Sting and Roberts, but I mean the dream match of having Jake Roberts in like every big show seems to be something like that. Yeah. So this is October 26th, 1997, three weeks after uh, bad blood in the WWF. It's the MGM arena, uh, MGM grand arena in Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, sellout crowd, 12,500 in attendance and a 1.1 buy rate, which is about 400,000 buys way up from 280,000 the previous year for Hogan and Savage in the main event. Man, that is so many damn buys. Yeah, this at this point, this would have been one of the biggest pay-per-views ever. Um, really wow. only behind WrestleMania five and maybe an early SummerSlam. I'm sure not all 400,000 people were happy with what they paid for, but <laughs> we'll get to that. Yeah. This show is a very mixed bag. Yes. Um, our opening match, we've got Yuji Nagata against Ultimo Dragon. Um, the story here is that Dragon has dumped Sonny Ono as his manager and turned face, so Ono has brought in Yuji Nagata, this kind of shooter from Japan, to teach Dragon a lesson. I'm fascinated by Yuji Nagata because when I was first learning about Japanese wrestling, it would it sort of shocked me to see, you know, even into the late 2000s, Yuji Nagata was still around, still a star in New Japan when he had never really been anything in WCW. He was just a guy. Yeah, it's actually really funny. Like he just went on his retirement tour just like a, a year or two ago. I, I think actually just last year. And it's he was unbelievably important to the history of New Japan Pro Wrestling specifically because in the thousands after the whole Enochism shit went down, which is a topic for a completely different podcast, he was the guy that held the company together when they didn't have any big stars. His exposure here on Nitro helped him a great deal at that time, actually. And right here, he is a baby. Like he is like fresh on his excursion, just oh my god, like when you see the crotchety old man now, just know that like he is like five years old here in this match. Yeah, I, it, it seems like he was never really in WCW full-time. I think he was always just on loan from New Japan when he would right. show up in WCW. 
well, like in the late 90s, they had a ridiculous glut of young talent that they were just sending all over the place to try to get anything that they could, especially since they were sending so many WCW guys over and crowding up the main event spots. Yeah. So I thought this was a really, really good match. This surprised me. Really um, good. Nagata is just awesome here. He's breaking out all kinds of cool stuff. Taz plexes. And he's really playing up as a dick heel. More charisma than I was expected from him. Yeah, he's got a ton of it. I, I haven't spent a lot of time watching him be a heel in wrestling because, I mean, obviously his role as like the savior of New Japan made him a babyface for life. But I love the character here that he's like the hired assassin that Sonny Ono has hired. So he's just like a real like professional but dickhead heel. Like he's like taking money from Ono and like, it's it's a cool gimmick. I like the idea that Ono would be like, I hate you, Ultimo Dragon. Let me go get the most dangerous wrestlers from Japan to kill you. Yeah, just makes sense. And he wrestles the match like he's trying to take Dragon out. Yes. Um, he's working his arm the whole time, and he ends up tapping him out with a Fujiwara armbar. And actually, one of the coolest things about Yuji Nagata is that if you go across his career, he spends the entire time with an armbar as his finisher, but he evolves it over the years like every so often there's been like seven different changes to his arm bar where by the end it's like he's got it underneath of his legs basically the disarmor that uh, becky lynch does but like his eyes rolled back like the undertaker like that's his special yeah all sorts of cool stuff here asai moonsault from dragon yeah. uh, power bombs off the top rope uh, frankensteiners really good match here if you're just looking for something random you've never seen to check out go check this out yeah, you cannot go wrong with ultimo dragon and wcw in this era i've never seen a match of his in this company that i did not like no he was absolutely awesome um i, I was so excited when wwe brought him in and he ended up having just a terrible run yeah yeah, yeah the only thing anybody remembers is he tripped during his entrance at wrestlemania 20 and vince didn't even know who the hell he was Oh boy. Yeah, so after the match, Nagata collects his bounty from Ono for, you know, taking out Dragon and breaking his arm. Can't really remember what became of this feud after this. Yeah, I thought that Ono did this a couple more times with Dragon, maybe with different guys, Probably. but it sounds right, but I can't remember exactly who it was. No. And it's kind of amazing to me WCW didn't see more potential in Nagata or maybe they just they couldn't really use him because they couldn't take somebody from New Japan like that. Yeah, New Japan definitely saw him as a big, big star of the future. He wouldn't get his push until like the thousands began and the main event cleared up, but yeah, they weren't letting him out of their sight. Yeah, so understandable. And next up, we've got another Japanese star coming over. We've got Chris Jericho against Gato in a bonus match. Now, this one's super weird because obviously New Japan had the deal going with them. Gato is not a New Japan wrestler. No? I mean, was he at this time? I, I have hold no on. idea. I don't know anything about him. This is the first time. This is the only match of his I've ever seen. To the best of my knowledge, he wasn't really in WCW other than this match. And we'll probably under, you'll probably understand why as we go through what happened here. 
Okay, I'm seeing it now. Actually, he was just doing a tour of North America on his own. He wasn't really with War or New Japan at this point. He was just kind of floating around. So I, I'm sure that he was just there visiting Jericho, and Jericho was like, hey, you want to get him a booking on pay-per-view for some reason? Yeah, that's a very WCW. It's just it's very odd that they would do this on a major, major pay-per-view. They have these matches where there's absolutely no story, and guys who aren't really over because – Jericho is still playing white meat babyface Chris Jericho. He doesn't turn heel for another month or two. And you know, Gato's never been on TV before. Nobody knows who he is. Yeah. Just remember as we go on that this is one half of the bookers of New Japan today. The ones who turned it all around and made it a gigantic success. This tubby motherfucker in the half shirt. Yeah. Who almost kills Chris Jericho here. Yeah, he sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, lots of arm work. Jericho does that double power bomb. That's a really cool move where he power bombs and pick, picks him up and power bombs him again. Uh, and then we get to the real highlight of the match where Jericho goes for a super Frankensteiner. They botch it and he just lands square on his head and looks like he's broken his neck. He wrote about this in one of his books. He said this was one of the scarier moments of his career. It was a disaster, too. Like, it looks... It's hard to even tell exactly what's going on. Like, it's... it. I don't even know how they botched it exactly, but it's wrong. <laughs> yeah, he... This easily could have been a tragedy here. Yeah. And yet, a couple seconds later, he goes for a planche to the floor and gets kicked in the face. <laughs> um... And then a minute or two later, Gato gets him up in an electric chair position and just kind of drops him, and Jericho lands really awkwardly on his knee and almost blows it out. I don't know. Gato and Jericho had worked together hundreds of times before this. Like, they were in the same stable together in war. So it's really just weird that they come in here and appear to have the least chemistry of any two people who have ever entered a wrestling ring together. Yeah, I don't know if it's the, the the size of the ring and Gato wasn't used to working in a ring so tiny. If it's just the you know kind of size of the event getting to him, but yeah, something about this didn't click, and it's very fortunate that Jericho made it out in one piece. Yeah. Um, so shortly thereafter, Gato comes off the top. Jericho blocks it and gets him in the Lion Tamer for the win. It wasn't a terrible match, but. Just too many, too many really scary botches here. Yes, and it has always bothered me, and I know I'm an extremely petty person. If you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you probably understand that I'm a very petty man. But Gato's outfit here looks so stupid. I, I've never been able to understand it. Like, even when he won the Best of the Super Juniors Tournament, he was wearing this stupid, stupid outfit which is just like mustard yellow from head to toe and a shirt that's kind of cut off over the belly button, but he doesn't have any abs. So you're always, it's always just kind of up around his neck, like in his way. Like I've never understood this. Yeah, he looks terrible. He looks terrible. For the match that his biggest exposure ever in America. He looks hey. like a complete idiot. Exactly. And they kind of tried to go with him as a star in various places at various times. He was just never cut out to be like a wrestling star. He would find his niche 
as being part of a tag team that always loses, but is that just the consummate heels and becoming the greatest booker on the planet? Yep. So it turned out okay in the end. Yeah, it sure did. Jericho wind up pretty good too. You know, he did all right. Yeah. Next match, we've got you know what what I think this event is at least should be primarily remembered for for the cruiserweight title mask versus title. It's Eddie Guerrero defending against Rey Mysterio Jr. Uh, this is one of the best matches I've ever seen. Full stop. No qualifiers needed. I. I've seen this match a few times before, but when I watched it this time, it almost felt like I was watching it for the first time. It's unbelievable how crisp every single thing that they do is. Like as we go through the story of the match, everything that you're going to hear, I just need you to understand that everything that you hear is being done more perfectly than anyone else has ever done it. Some of the stuff Ray pulls off here, I've never seen him do in any other match. Like no, he wouldn't. He hits it all perfectly. Say he wouldn't trust anybody but Eddie to like be in the right spot to make it work. You know, like these um, two had the opposite of Jericho Gato chemistry. Like they, these two may have the best chemistry of any two people ever in wrestling. Yeah, if you've only ever seen their WWE matches where they were both, you know, fifty pounds heavier and ten years older, gotta go watch this. It's, it's two completely wild. different wrestlers here. Yeah. So the storyline is just Eddie hates Ray, and he's obsessed with getting his mask off. Um, it's such a good storyline that WWE just redid it with Chris Jericho and Rey Mysterio in the late 2000s. And they also had an awesome mask versus title match. They sure did. Uh, is this was, that, the, was that the Basho 9, I think? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Like the last really, really good singles Jericho match, probably. Yeah. Um, is this the first feud where Eddie really starts showing an actual personality in WCW? Yeah, it feels like I think this was his heel turn because I remember uh, a few months, the, the previous match, a human Benoit Malenko had been wrestling, but he was still. You know, kind of playing just bland babyface Eddie. And here he's, yeah, just 100%. Not just shithead heel, but also vicious heel. Yeah, that, like, inner maniac Eddie Guerrero, where he's just, like, a complete asshole, but he's also just, like, able to, like, pick you apart, is one of the underrated characters in wrestling history. Like, it's just, he's evil. He's fantastically evil. And it's so great for him to be working against Ray, who's so tiny, because Eddie is twice his size and just pummels him. And the beautiful thing is that, like, he's vicious and he's bigger and he's stronger and he's as fast. That's the beauty. Like, that that yeah. kind of thing will always work. So I want to note Ray's ring gear here. It seems clearly inspired by the Phantom uh, with Billy Zane. Uh, the yeah. old serial, the movie had come out a year before this. It's it's pretty cool, and it really plays into the match because the mask is attached to the shirt, and that's how Eddie can't. Eddie is ripping at the mask the whole match, and he can't get it off. And it's kind of a genius move since the entire premise of this feud is Eddie's going to try to rip my mask off. I don't want to let him. Yeah, um, just amazing stuff here, Eddie. Ray goes for a springboard moonsault. Eddie catches him. Ray flows right into an arm drag. Ray tries a handspring. Eddie catches him in the middle of it and German suplexes him. Um, 
Eddie puts him in an abdominal stretch, rips at the mask, transitions into a pump handle backbreaker. And then Ray hits an insane springboard handspring DDT. This is like one of those moves that's in the WWE video game that would never work in real life, but he pulls it off. I think the entire, like, some of these shows, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I kind of watch while I do other stuff. I mean, oh, yeah. they don't always pull your interest completely. You can kind of just listen to commentary. I watched this match wrapped attention, and I've seen it multiple times before. But even so, and then every single time he hits that springboard DDT, I just, like, my jaw drops. Because it's a thing of beauty unlike anything I've ever seen in wrestling. It seems impossible, and he hits it absolutely perfectly. Yes. I mean, it's incredible. Um, he drop kicks Eddie to the floor. He goes for a springboard planche. Eddie cuts him off. Eddie beats on him, locks him in a camel clutch, goes for the mask again. Then he goes to the gory special. Ray gets out with an arm drag, but he gets drop kicked. Eddie's just a step ahead the whole match. Eddie, man, I... I'm usually not so much at a loss for words, but like I, I don't even know like what analysis to give you. Like Eddie is doing such an effective job at just showing that like he's just better than Ray. He's faster, he's stronger, he's scouted him, he's just focused and intense and crazy about get winning this match and getting this mask off of Ray. Like I honestly it's half a squash match all the way to this point. Ray knows he's gotta do something to try to turn the tide and he's got something big planned. He knocks Eddie down to the floor. He hits the ropes. He comes off with a you know front flip senton. Eddie catches him and Ray transitions right into a Hurricane Rana. It's jaw-dropping. And I, I don't want... like If you've never seen this match before and you go and watch it after you hear us say such incredibly positive things about it, that's going to be great. You're going to have seen stuff like this done on like the indie scene ever since because this match basically is one of the major things that spawned the X division and all those kind of wrestlers and all that kind of style. I will always believe that this is like the singular match that contributed to people trying to pull off moves like this on the indie scene for the next decade. Yeah, and the difference here is they're, they're, they're telling a story here too. Exactly. Like there's there, a reason there's, for all of this. In between the big moves, there's stuff that makes it make sense and they're, and they're selling. There's a reason why Rey Mysterio got over so significantly as a star, too, and not every skinny indie worker will. And it's because, like, him being so scrawny but so absolutely incredible, he has to do this ridiculous shit or he can't hurt people. And, like, that's the really effective thing that they communicate here is what can you do if you're Rey and you have to do damage, but everything you try gets countered? You got to go for the biggest possible moves the entire time. Yeah. So... Ray goes for a, a super Frankensteiner, but Eddie power bombs him off the top rope for a really close two count. Awesome. Nasty, nasty power bomb. Um, Eddie goes for the frog splash. Ray rolls out of the way, but Eddie, you know, changes the angle in midair and rolls through instead of hitting the mat. Um, Ray goes for a Hurricane Rana. Eddie drops him on the top rope. Eddie sets up for Splash Mountain, but Ray counters into a Hurricane Rana for the one, two, three. Giant pop. Crowd was completely into this five-star classic. It's 
the entire match is a testament to Eddie Guerrero, and it's not a surprise. Like you can see right here, the person who will eventually go on to be one of the biggest stars in the world before his death. And you can see in Ray the reason why Ray is the only person who really escaped the cruiserweight division is that he's they're both just too fucking good. And I mean, even like guys like Ultimo Dragon and them are unbelievable, but this is a level no one has ever reached. Yeah, this is I can't give enough praise to this match. This match is only 14 minutes long, is the other thing. This is Man. Has there ever been a better match under 15 minutes? I don't think so. I seriously doubt it. Like, this, it, it's otherworldly. And to think what they could have done with five extra minutes, like, man, that would have been crazy. Yeah. Um, awesome stuff. If you've never seen this, you've got to go watch this. Yeah. Oh, oh, without a question. I mean, like, not to bring Meltzer ratings into it necessarily, but this is one of the very few American five-star matches ever awarded. <laughs> Absolutely deserved. Um, and because Eddie's a shithead, he beats up Ray after the match. Yeah, he did. <laughs> and this feud, it probably shouldn't have continued because this was the perfect cap to it, but Eddie would actually win the Cruiserweight title back from Ray at World War Three a month later. Now, here's the really important thing for you guys out there. If you love this match and you're like, man, I wish I could see more Eddie Guerrero versus Rey Mysterio, it's really, really important that you not watch their WWE stuff, even though it sounds like it's going to be good, because you don't need to see a, a ladder match over custody papers for Rey's son. <laughs> oh, I can't wait until we cover that pay-per-view. Oh, someday. my God. Oh, I my God. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. So the next thing that happens is kind of hilarious. They cut to the back for a Hogan Bischoff promo, but I guess it's live because when they cut back, they're just kind of like standing there, not in character, and then they get the cue, oh, no, the camera's on, and they quickly kind of go into character and start doing the promo. My favorite part about that, too, is they literally just shows them like 10 seconds just standing around, and then Bischoff opens his mouth to talk, and Hogan's like, no! It's like, <laughs> all right. That's your boss, dude. So this promo goes on for several minutes, all to just explain Hogan says he's not going to wrestle Piper tonight unless he has a guarantee in writing from WCW that Sting won't be in the arena. I don't know what the point of this is. Like, this what, seems what is like this something that you do on Nitro. Yeah, it seems like something you do on Nitro the week before. Like, give it to me in writing that he won't be there, or uh, or I refuse to do the match, and then Sting shows up at the contract signing or something like that. But this, like, Sting doesn't show up, so who cares? No, that's the problem. Like, it's as soon as you do this, you're like, oh, Sting's gonna show up. Obviously, of course he is, but he doesn't. He doesn't. I mean, when we get to the main event, someone in Sting's makeup does show up, but not Sting. A lot, a lot of someones show up. Yes. Um, so the next match is Steve McMichael versus Alex Wright. And this is another storyline I don't quite recall the details of, but Deborah was mad at Mongo. So she has picked out the opponent for him. And the opponent turns out to be a 150-pound German dude. Like a dancing douchebag. 
first of all, this all starts with like kind of a promo segment in the back where Deborah is never quite speaking loud enough for the camp for oh, the microphone to pick up really, what she's saying. Really bad promo. Horrible. And then Mongo comes on and just they do a bunch of talking and the segment literally ends with them standing side by side like shrugging at the camera like an old sitcom just like doop doop do the mcmichaels oh, this was really bad uh the, the match is of course not good mongo really sucked i i thought alex wright was a decent wrestler but what is he doing in this role <laughs> it's clear the, that who's the heel here they really wanted Alex Wright to do something, and I would have really liked that too because he obviously he was skilled in the ring. He had a good look. I always okay. I love the Alex Wright dance so much; it's literally my go-to <laughs> on the dance floor. I'll just tell you that right now. A but, very good one. Oh, it's so good. But like, because anybody anybody can pull that off. He doesn't have any damn personality or reason to be here. No. And the really great part is the interference in this match from one William Goldberg. <laughs> Bill Goldberg interferes in this match because Goldberg was a heel at first. This has been totally memory hold. They yeah. just, even almost right after this feud ended, they pretended it never happened. Goldberg shows up and attacks Mongo, and as a reward, he gets Mongo's Super Bowl ring from Deborah. I just, I, I can't believe that they thought any of this was going to work because clearly by this point they already think Goldberg is money, right? Yeah. Oh, they did. And then, you can tell from the way they debuted him. I mean, they debuted him with that awesome debut where it looked like he was going to be, you know, a job guy, and instead he beats Hugh Morris. But here, yeah, he's playing a heel. And this is the worst storyline I've ever seen where it's like, oh, he's this bitter old football player who never won a Super Bowl, so he's going to get Steve McMichael's Super Bowl ring. And, like, he's just kind of palling around with Deborah, and he's just, like, scowling at the camera like, her, 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 I got the ring. And then poor Alex Wright. And I laughed out loud when this happens. He goes over and he slaps Goldberg on the back, and then Goldberg just beats his ass for like five minutes. That was fun. That was the fun. other thing I love is I think this is the worst executed run in I've ever seen. Charles Robinson looks like such a goof here having to not see this interference. <laughs> Goldberg takes so long to take out Mongo that at one point, um, you know. Robinson is kind of dealing with Deborah, and he turns around thinking that this is done, but it's still going. So he has to just kind of like avert his eyes and <laughs> look back at Deborah. Oh my god! And like I can't. There's a number of times anytime you watch a WCW show where you'll be like, "Why is this ring so small?" It would make a lot more sense if it wasn't this small. And one of those things is anytime Goldberg has to do a spear, because oh. like Alex Wright doesn't leave the ring. And like everybody's still in the ring, so he literally has to jump over people to steer to spear Mongo. So he's literally he gets like one step of acceleration. Yeah, still looks like it would kill him though. It does, but like that's why he had to lay it in so hard. If you actually give him some running room, he can fake it. Yeah, Goldberg wasn't good at faking it. He just hurt people for real. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. <laughs> um. 
So, right wins because of the interference. This was really bad. It was horrible. <laughs> this was hilariously bad. Oh, boy. And what came next wasn't a ton better. Television champion Disco Inferno against Jacqueline. This should be great, but it isn't. I mean, let's look at this. Like, Jacqueline made her name kind of being like the tough-as-nails broad who beat up the men, right? Have you ever seen the squash match? It's Kevin Sullivan squashing Hardbody Harrison, but Jacqueline gets to beat him up, and she just kicks the shit out of him. She's stiffing him with punches. She body slams him, suplexes him, and the crowd is going crazy. I mean, she was a fucking badass, and she was, like, objectively a draw a lot of places for this exact act. Like... It's just so weird that in this era, like, there's literally only one woman's wrestler who's taken seriously against the men, to the extent where they barely even are, like, bother to come up with a reason for her to be facing a man. And it's not, like, a big deal for her. She's just like, all right, yeah, I'm going to come in and kick Disco Inferno's ass. And Disco's the perfect guy to do it against because he's a joke anyway. This except, is... he's the t- except he's the TV champion for some reason. Right. This is so close to being something good. And if there's no commentary on it whatsoever, maybe it even is. But they fuck this up so bad. Yeah, they do. It's just the entire through line of the commentary is, well, obviously Disco can't hit a woman because what kind of man would he be? And boy, if he loses to a woman, he's a real piece of shit. Ha ha ha. I mean, that is, it's the, it's the problem you always run into with the intergender match is the whole, like the thing that makes it so high stakes for the man is, Oh yeah, they they'd be humiliated if they lost to the woman, but that's just flagrantly sexist. Yeah, it, and you have just... to have the babyface commentator put that over. And so you get a situation where literally Bobby Heenan is in there throwing out a bunch of feminist support. Yeah. Like, why couldn't she beat a man? What are you talking about? She's just as good as any man. Yeah, punch her in the face. <laughs> punch her in the face. Do it. Yeah, or what but... a man you are. So this is nine minutes of just pure stalling. I keep, I'm like, they're going to get into this, and it's going to be awesome, but she never really gets to beat him up. No. Literally, the entire premise is Disco can't perform an offensive move, and Jackie can't catch him. What yeah. an amazing match. And then she, she, she rolls him up and pins him, and that, that's just it. Uh, this was so disappointing. I would have loved to see... A match where at first Disco's taking her lightly and she beats him. Then she starts beating on him and he, he has to actually take it seriously and then she beats him anyway. Agreed. I mean, it's one of those things, too, where, like, there are some cases where, unfortunately, fan bases won't accept certain women beating certain men. Jackie could kick Disco Inferno's fucking ass any day of the week, probably even now. <laughs> yeah. Um, you don't have to sell this. Everybody would love to see it. Yes. <sighs> Real letdown. Uh, so next match, we've got Kurt Hennig defending the U.S. title against Ric Flair. This is a month after the infamous War Games match where Hennig turned on the horseman, slammed Flair's head in the cage, so it's a huge grudge match. Hennig uh, comes out in Flair's robe that he stole with the sleeves cut off. I loved that image. And he can't get the robe off for most of the match because Flair is <laughs> just beating his ass. It's such a good visual, and you can tell the fans are pissed off about it. Like, it's sacrilege to cut the, the yeah. sleeves off of one of Flair's robes. 
Yeah, Flare. This is some of the most intense I've ever seen Flare work. And he... It's funny how good that he looks here. And, like, it's hard to remember that throughout all of this period, he's not really in the main event or even really all that close to it. Like, they waste so much time with Flair that he could have actually been drawing. Yeah, he's just... He was just permanent. I mean, pretty much... After Hogan came in and he lost all the Hogan matches, that he was just kind of permanently consigned to the mid card after that. Which is a real shame because, like, the spot that like Luger will eventually have, where he'll get one over on Hogan, or DDP will get one over on Hogan, Flair never really does. Man, you would have thought that that spot would be reserved for Flair. Yeah, I, I, I think Bischoff. I don't think it seemed like Bischoff wasn't a Flair fan. Yeah. Which is weird because go out of his way to antagonize him. Because Hogan was like that's one of the few guys Hogan might have done a job to. Yeah, but he never did. No, never did. Um, Hennig takes over and he works on Flair. It's it's kind of sad to watch Kurt Hennig in WSW because he's just not himself. His back was just too messed up. I always thought that he didn't spend that much time in WCW, and then you go back and realize, like, man, he's here for years, yeah, just kind of doing stuff. Go for it. He'll be in the yeah. West Texas Rednecks at some point. That—that's the best thing he ever did. Rap is crap. Um, Hennig works on Flair. Hennig goes for a perfect plex onto the title belt. Flair blocks it, puts Hennig in the tree of woe puts the title up against his face, and baseball slides the title into his face. Genius. Gets disqualified, but it's totally worth it. That is an awesome visual. It, it might be the coolest offensive move I've ever seen Ric Flair do. Absolutely badass. I liked this a lot. It was awesome. Like, this is... It's unlike anything else on the card, too, because it's not like a big sloppy fight with a bunch of just like run-ins and crap, and it's not just kind of like a technical fun match. Like this is a brawl. Like this feels like old WCW. Ton of intensity here. Um, so next, we get Mean Gene interviewing JJ Dillon. He's got the signed contract guaranteeing Sting will not be in the arena tonight. So the Hogan Flair match will go on. Bischoff comes out and says that if Sting shows up, the NWO gets control of Nitro. I just these weird stipulations were always kind of floating around these matches. Like, what the fuck do you mean the NWO gets control of Nitro? Was that on in the contract? Uh, Why? Seemingly, I just it's yeah. And a few weeks after this, they would do the Nitro where the NWO took over, and it just tanked in the ratings. I just love the idea that Sting did come to the arena and J.J. Dillon had to go up to him and be like, uh, hey, so will you sign this contract that says that you're going to leave? Yeah. <laughs> and Sting being like, okay. We'll get you We'll get you comped for tonight, don't worry. That is it. And Sting just like, yeah, all right, I'm out, and does not come. <laughs> go play some blackjack. <laughs> um, so the next match, we've got Lex Luger against Scott Hall with Larry Zabisco as the special guest referee. Larry Zabisco is the only good thing about this match. It is truly a testament to both the talent and overness of Scott Hall. And the weird, perfect character of Larry Zabisco at this point, 
that Larry Zbysko is suddenly one of like the top three baby faces in WCW? <laughs> Not a mystery. He's basically the only guy who's gotten to not look like an asshole against the NWO. Like, he actually stands up for himself and doesn't get fooled by their tricks. And they kind of lay the foundation for that early on. Like, Zabisco always sees through that shit. And, like, they kind of make a point of being like, Larry just being like, why are you such stupid assholes? I knew all the time. Yeah. He's always the guy who's like, why don't we have any people backing our guys up? We know they're going to interfere. Why are we so dumb? But yeah, I think this just started completely organically. It was like Paul was talking shit to Larry, and Larry like dropped his headset and stood up and challenged him, and the crowd went crazy for it. And this is eventually going to lead to a Larry's Bisco versus Eric Bischoff match at Starcade, which is Woo! better than it has any right to be. Of course it does, because Larry's awesome, and I will always defend him. It's just funny that he's one of the great heels of all time. He really is. But, like, this is what most people remember him from now. Well, it's, you know, it's I've always felt like with a heel, at some point, people want to be able to cheer them, and that's kind of what it was with Larry. Right. The living legend. The thing is, he wasn't that old here, either. I think he was only in his mid-40s, maybe late 40s. He just... Unfortunately, he has not been keeping in shape, and maybe he could have actually gotten a run out of this if he didn't look like such a fat old man. (laughs) He's got a commentator body. Larry had other priorities. That's right. Uh, This match is really bad. Really, really bad. Lex Luger, except in very specific situations, sucks. (laughs) I would have thought Scott Hall could have gotten a good match out of him, especially since Luger was so hot at this point, but it does not happen here. And it's worth mentioning that this has been true throughout time. If Scott Hall doesn't want to get a good match out of you, he ain't going to bother trying. No, and no, I mean, the only, the only, the attraction here is Zabisco and Hall, so what's the point in trying? And the point is, like, the crowd doesn't really seem to give a shit about Lex, but, like, when Larry starts throwing down the law, the, the crowd pops gigantic. Yeah, uh, Bischoff tries to interfere, and Larry knocks his ass out. It's hilarious. Like, he's, like, climbing up on the ring ropes, and Larry just comes through with, like, a Yakuza kick to the nuts, and it's great. (laughs) Um, Six manages to hit Luger behind Larry's back. Hall gets the pin. But because Larry Zabisco is the smartest man in wrestling, he wants a replay. He knows something fishy went down here. The only thing that confused me was uh, I, Luger like immediately like racks Hall for the win, but I couldn't tell that he did win. Eh, then, like, who cares? I'm about to say like it's not really super clear, but whatever, it's fine. Was it a DQ? Was it a submission? Is there any reason to care? Not really. <laughs> do you get a bigger purse for a pinfall or submission victory? If you do, I'm sure Lex Luger knows all about it. <laughs> Uh, this match is awful, but I, I I just love Larry Zbysko from this era, or yeah. any era. And then he gets to beat up six. Like, he just beats up the whole this NWO. Awesome. He puts him in a triangle choke and then transitions it into a guillotine. He, like, straight up MMA six in the middle of the ring. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah, it's like he basically invented this style. Fucking Larry Zabisco, just old man shooting on six. 
I, I can't believe it. I don't think they ever did Zabisco in six, but that would have been awesome. Oh yeah, like that would have been all sorts of cool. Yeah, that seems. I mean, that seems like a better matchup than him and Hall because it's, it's him and Hall. It's like really plausible that this old man can beat Scott Hall. Right. But six, he could beat. Especially since like six was the guy who did jobs for the NWO. That was his primary role. Yeah. Do all the good work, take all the jobs. So next up, we've got the Las Vegas sudden death match between Randy Savage and Diamond Dallas Page. I think that this is really a legendary feud because everybody sort of understands this is a star. Yeah, like, it can't be said enough. Diamond Dallas Page has done nothing but give Randy Savage full credit for all of the success that he had in his career after this point. Because it, Randy Savage basically just said, like, I'll work with Page. I'll make our feud. I want to make this the big deal. Uh, give, have him give me his finish in the middle of the ring. One, two, three, whenever. Like, I, I want to sell for this guy. Randy Savage did not have to sell for Diamond Dallas Page or make this anything. Randy Savage, yeah. at this point, could have done anything he fucking wanted to. Randy Savage chose to make DDP a star, and he did. Yeah. yeah. Um, Page beat him with the Diamond Cutter, one, two, three, in the middle of the ring at Spring Stampede. Uh, Page lost the rematch at the Great American Bash because of interference. And these guys kind of carried WCW. Those were the main events of those pay-per-views because Hogan was – uh, gone making a movie or something or just generally being lazy and not wanting to wrestle. So these two guys were the main event scene for several months. Yeah, and I think I heard somewhere that like literally the first, like Spring Stampede Savage versus Page was the first non-Hulk Hogan main evented WCW pay-per-view since he debuted in the company. I'm like, wow, what a statement that is. Yeah. Um, so this... I really like this. So the rules are, it's a last man standing match. You win when your opponent can't answer the 10 count. Page, of course, has busted ribs, and he's also in the jeans here. This is what I consider kind of the classic DDP look. Yeah, like he just always had busted ribs all the time. It's like how Jeff Hardy's back is always hurting. Yeah, like it's just like you can tell that that's what really hurts them in real life because they find it so easy to sell. Um, just whenever Page gets going here, Savage gets him in the ribs and takes over. Um, Savage goes, or Page goes for the diamond cutter, but Savage slips out and gets out of the ring. Page hits a plancha, which is not something you would usually see from him. Super awesome. They fight into the crowd, which is, you know, at least still sort of a novelty for WCW at this point. Elizabeth shows up and goes after Page. And Kimberly comes out, and we've got a cat fight. And let the record show that Elizabeth does the worst interference I've ever seen. Like, I know that she's not a conventional manager, and she never really was. But, like, literally, she just comes over, and she kind of, like, grabs a handful of DDP's hair and kind of tugs on it and then runs away. Yeah. And, and like, that's her ass. Yeah. Uh, crowd went wild for that. Oh, yeah. It was pretty freaking awesome. Um, uh, the women are gone. Page goes for the diamond cutter again. Savage blocks. Elbow drop right on the ribs. Um, Page makes it up. Savage knocks him down. Hits another elbow drop. Page gets up at nine again. Diamond cutter. Page is up at eight. Savage at nine. 
Page goes for another diamond cutter. Savage gets him with a low blow. Page makes it to his feet, but a fake sting shows up, cracks him in the ribs with the baseball bat. Page can't answer the count, and Savage wins. thought this was a really, really good match, but I really feel like Page probably should have won here. I don't know why Savage got the win here. I think it was a complete miscalculation to have Fake Sting come out here and do this because they had kind of already blown their wad with this, with the Fake Sting thing, and then Real Sting showing up and endorsing Paige like earlier in the year. Like They had already shown that Sting was on Paige's side. So I guess the idea was you were supposed to think it was Real Sting, but that Real Sting had blown his like had blown the whole Hogan Piper thing yeah. and had come out here to help Paige for some reason, and then he hits him. The crowd does not react as if they believe that was actually Sting. Oh, no, because they've done this so many times at this point. And um, like it, it doesn't look like Sting. He looks so fucking goofy and bad. I think it's Hogan. I think they they just kind of casually say like between the two next match before the next match. Oh, that was Hogan. You could tell from the boots are you serious i didn't even yeah. notice yeah apparently i can't believe hogan let them put that fucking makeup on him in the goofy ass wig well i think it's just a, i think it's just a mask oh i guess that would make sense yeah um and the thing is hogan also interfered and screwed page at world war three so it seems like they're building towards a hogan page match but that never happens well, it must be said, too, that they're kind of, because they had to spend an entire year without Sting actually being on television, they sort of accidentally built up a bunch of really compelling challengers to Hogan, but only one of them can actually be the one who beats him. And so, yeah. like, now you have this place for, like, conceivably, in another world, Paige could have been the one to beat Hogan, or Luger could be the one to beat Hogan, or even Flair, if they had ever actually bothered to push him. But, like, instead, what we have... Is like it's gonna be Sting. Everyone knows it's gonna be Sting. So DDP's just in limbo. Yeah, and he—I mean—he never gets a feud with Hogan. He, the only time there, the only time I remember them being in the same match together is that uh, Spring Stampede four-way match that we um, that we covered at Spring Stampede '99. Right, but I, I do think honestly that short title reign that Lex has—that sort of like is the huge surprise and it's a great moment—that should have been DDP. That would have been the equivalent of like Jericho beating Triple H on Raw. It would have been kind of perfect for him too, because he's not the kind of guy who you the character doesn't really make sense to be a long term champion anyway. Yeah, and it's compelling. Like anybody can lose to the Diamond Cutter, even Hogan. Yeah, that would have been pretty awesome, and it didn't do any. Like I think it actually hurt Luger that he lost the title so quickly. Yeah, exactly. Like it. So I mean, in retrospect, it probably should have been DDP, and he probably would have been had a more compelling case for like his actual career because honestly he never really reaches the heights that he could have because there's just no way to get there he gets glass ceiling well, pretty quick i mean and with a roster this stacked i don't think he really should have gotten a stronger push than he did right it's just you know it's in a different era absolutely but they've just got too many big stars there's too many guys ahead of him on the totem pole agreed um so next up, we've got the main event, the steel cage match, Hollywood Hogan versus Rowdy Roddy Piper. Um, where do you even begin with this? So, so the cage looks like shit. The cage, it's it's big. It's you know one of those cages that surrounds ringside 
it's a bar cage, but it's really rickety. Like, you think this thing is going to collapse every time they start to climb it. Hogan shakes it, and it looks like it's going to fall down. Which is pretty incredible, because later, not one, but two people are going to climb to the top of this thing. And it's like, the whole time I'm like, no, don't. That That's so unsafe. Um, so Hogan's the champion, but he comes out without the title. It turns out Piper, Piper's got the belt because he stole it from him. Um, you know, the Nitro before this. Michael Buffer, of course, does the introductions. He says that the survivor, if there is one, will be declared the winner. Stuff like that by itself is well worth like a million dollar a year salary. <laughs> Just like, I holy love, shit, I, that's so I, good. I love the Michael Buffer introductions. Yes. I think they add so much to these main events. Yes, it just feels so much bigger. Yeah, uh, it, it just, it worked. It works. I love the, you know, this match sanctioned by the Nevada State Athletic Commission and, you know, you introduce the official and all that. It just, it makes it feel legitimate. Even though this is silly, ridiculous steel cage match, it makes it feel like a real sporting event. Which, thank God, because nothing else about this is going to feel like a real sporting event. <laughs> there is no athleticism on display here. Age in the cage. Um, That's the nickname of the match for a reason. So the first thing you would notice is there's no referee inside the cage, and the announcers are speculating as to how the match is won because they have no idea. <laughs> I just, how does this happen? How do you not you know, smarten up the announcers on these are the rules? Or are they supposed to not know? I mean, it... <laughs> They've said multiple times that, like, they intentionally were not smartened up so that they could provide, like, a really kind of fresh, like, along with the audience kind of react to the show. And and keep them I'm okay the with that when it comes to, you know, surprises, somebody's going to show up, that kind of thing. But for the rules of the match, it's ridiculous. Yes. And literally, like, can I just want you to try to imagine right now, like, they have a new match in WWE, and, like, Michael Cole is calling it. It's just like, um... I'm not really sure how they're supposed to win, but I guess we'll find out. Yeah. So early in the match, they go to the door, and Shivani's like, "If if they if someone escapes here, that's going to be it." And then they both go through the door, and the match just <laughs> continues. And they sort of pass off as like, "Oh well, did they, they both went out at the same time, so I guess the match is going to continue." Ugh. You can just tell that, like, Tony Schiavone's, like, doodling on paper in front oh, of him, like, fuck what the it. fuck? I don't, yeah. whatever. <laughs> Who gives a fuck anymore? Um, uh, so they fight outside the cage. Hogan tries to slam the door on Piper, and he screws it up. <laughs> um, Hogan tries to climb the cage, and Piper bites his ass. Yeah, which... Ass bites were very legitimate maneuver in their day. Oh boy, uh, you don't want to mess around with some ass biting. Like old school wrestling involves so much man ass that like it defies <laughs> belief. Like I'm it, surprised they didn't do a Hogan Moon spot here. That that seemed like the kind of thing you needed to get through this match. Like I remember back in the day that there was like a fifty percent chance that in any main event match you were going to see some dude's ass, and like yeah. it's. And it was never who you'd want to unless it was a Michaels match because Michaels loved that spot. Yep. Yeah. 
like Triple uh, H carried that on well into the thousands. Yeah, nothing gay about that. Just a dude getting his pants pulled down in front of the crowd. Yeah, it's hilarious. See his thong. <laughs> it's one of those things I love about wrestling. How wrestling is very homophobic until it's not. Yeah. That wrestling is racist until it's not, misogynistic until it's not, homophobic until it's not, until some money can be made, brother. Um, there's lots of stings. A sting comes out on the aisle, and then another sting comes out, and then more come through the crowd. I just I don't know what they're going for. Honestly, I, I actually you, don't know what the intention was. Do you re remember? Did you ever see the GIF of Sting in TNA when he was feuding with RVD? Yes. And he's sitting in the front row. And like RVD walks up to a Sting fan in the front row with a Sting mask on, and then that fan hits him with a chair, and he stands up and takes the mask off, and it's Sting wearing a Sting mask. <laughs> yeah. I thought for sure that's going to be what was going to be what this was, that one of the Stings would just actually be Sting. But none of them are. No. Are we supposed to think on it? I, just, I don't know what they're going for here. I really don't. There's just... And it, it, the funny thing is, it's eerily similar to like when they did the black scorpion thing with like a bunch of black scorpions. <laughs> a little bit. There was a really kind of good version of this where a bunch of stings were coming out of the crowd and they're all getting punched out by the NWO. And then Buff Bagwell punches one of them and he poses. But the, but the guy doesn't sell it. And you realize, oh shit, that's the real sting. <laughs> that's awesome. That's yeah. a great idea. This was not... This leads to nothing. There's just stings kind of hanging out outside the cage. I do love the idea of just being like the NWO army versus just an army of sting. Just like a whole bunch of dudes in sting masks. I really thought Piper was going to have a heart attack here. He looks horrible. <laughs> At one point, they try to put over that he's in great shape too. And it's like, no, he's not. Like, he, this what? match goes 15 minutes. He's at by the five minute mark, he looks like he's gone 55. I'm impressed they could climb the cage. At one point, Shivani's like, No, I don't think they can climb out of the cage. <laughs> <laughs> he tries to cover, like, Oh, there's so much adrenaline and all that. One of those classic Shivani burials. <laughs> oh, I wish Jim Ross had called this match because he would have taken a shit all over Piper. Oh my God! Yes, he would. Just like, oh, the have, doesn't quite have the cardiovascular conditioning he used to. <laughs> Jim Ross was so good for that. It would have just been like, oh, they don't seem to be climbing the cage very much. Uh, maybe the bars are slippery. <laughs> I every time they climb it, I think the cage is about to go down, and then something just insane happens. Hogan calls for reinforcements. Savage runs down, climbs all the way up this giant cage stands up on the top of it and jumps off into the ring with an axe handle and completely misses everything. I, uh, let, I know I literally say this every single podcast that we do, but let me paint you a word picture here, okay? This cage is like hell in a cell in dimensions. Like not quite as high, but high. Yeah. Like easily as high as like the tall ladders are that they use for ladder matches. And it's surrounding the ring, so it's as far away from the ring itself as like a Hell in a Cell structure normally would be. Savage climbs to the top of this rickety-ass piece of shit while these two are in the ring, leaps off all the way into the ring, misses everyone, lands directly on his, like, knees, and then 
Piper picks him up and chucks him out, so he takes a hard bump on the floor. And it's like, why? Why? Yeah, so if you can believe this, Savage ended up missing most of 1998 with a knee injury. No! <laughs> How could that have happened? It's like one of those like incredibly stupid bumps that in like uh, that you would think that like a rookie would do because he doesn't know any better. And this is Randy Savage. And he's like forty years old here, and he there is no reason for him to be doing this. And it doesn't even look good because he's so afraid to squash oh Piper. Yeah, I, what if he if he had hit him, he probably would have hurt him. <laughs> they probably all would have had a heart attack. Oh God. Um... But then, that's not even the best interference in this match. Okay, so right after that, Hogan, Piper puts the sleeper on Hogan, and Hogan passes out, and Piper wins. Means nothing. Crowd kind of pops, but they've pretty much been killed off by this point. Hogan basically kips up from it. <laughs> yeah, Hogan's, Hogan goes from passed out to up and kicking the shit out of Piper in about 10 seconds. Uh, Savage and Bischoff join in. Uh, they handcuff Piper to the cage and beat him up. Bischoff is doing his shitty karate kicks to his ribs. And then a fan jumps the aisle, climbs all the way up the giant cage and all the way down and gets in the ring. And the guys just proceed to kick the shit out of him. Like, for real, beat him up. I'm sure this guy was a plant. But they made this look like it was a real beatdown. Yeah, the only way that I can tell that it's definitely a plan is that the cameras focus on him and the commentators clearly call the whole thing. They're just like, hey, what's this kid doing in here? Like, they make a note of it, which they obviously wouldn't do if it wasn't real. But, like, the second he hits the ground inside the cage, like, a road agent comes out from under the ring and just, like, pins him to the ground like it's real. And then, like, Hogan and Piper, like, tie him – or Hogan and Savage tie him up – and they just stiffed the fuck out of this kid. I have never seen Hulk Hogan lay it in like this in my entire life. No. Um, yeah, they're beating on him like it's the real deal. I mean, there if you Google this, there's kind of debates on the internet about whether this was legit or not. I I can't believe this wasn't set up. I just But I can't the funny thing is imagine if they don't up the cage. Since they don't smarten up the announcers ahead of time. I bet you Tony Schiavone didn't know either. No, yeah, I think they just have to kind of go along with it. Which the thing is, if it were if if they had if it were real and they knew it was real, they wouldn't they would have avoided talking about it because they never wanted to call attention to that. Right. It's just so interesting, and then they like carry him out, but it's like the whole security team is in there for this one kid, and it. It's very strange. And then, like, the broadcast just kind of ends with Piper just hanging morosely from his handcuffs by himself. Now, this is supposed to get a ton of heat, but it doesn't. The crowd's just chanting for Sting the whole time. Yeah, I wonder if the idea was to kind of get over... I don't know that, like, all the fans were on Sting's side, because the kid has Sting face paint on. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, may- I think that they're just going for the image of, like, the NWO beating up this innocent fan. Like, that works a lot better if it's just, like, a normal match and the kid, like, hops the guardrail and jumps in the ring. To for have him climb, like, an 18-foot cage. It's Man, I don't know if I could make it up that thing. Hell no, I couldn't. Yeah, that looks like it would be a real workout. I mean, this one's easier to climb than the Hell in a Cell because it's bars and there's more, you know, it's more climbable. But still, 
That's a long way up and a long way down. I just love that he like gets up, gets in, frantically looks around, and then just gets like Goldberg speared by someone under the ring, who turns out to be nobody that anybody knows. Yeah. Uh, this, I mean, this whole thing feels like it was put together by Hogan, and everything about this was terrible. Yeah, it was. It was miserable. If you've ever heard of Age in the Cage before and heard that it's a crappy match that you shouldn't bother seeing, yeah, you heard right. And the interesting thing is, like, it kind of seems like it would work as, you know, when you watch Raw after the pay-per-view, like back in the day when they would just show, like, still images of, like, the night before? Yeah. Because they didn't want to give it away and they wanted you to buy the replay. It seems like a tailor-made match for that. Like, yeah. you show them facing off. You show Savage coming off the cage. You show him beating yeah. up the fan. You show Piper in the good. handcuffs. It would look cool that way, but to actually see it as a match is horrible. Is this is this the worst main event match you've ever seen? No, because I saw the first Punjabi prison. Ah, <laughs> uh, that wasn't a main event though. I thought it was. I, I'm I'm sure that I've seen a worse main. No, you know what? Because I saw the uh, what was it? Uncensored '95, oh, the Duke Triple Tower. Yeah, yeah that's I mean, that, the worst. That was, main that event. was worse. Yeah. yeah. The other thing, the thing about this is, I don't feel like you would ever. This is something that wouldn't happen in the, in the WWF. You would never have a match that was a main event that was just this much of a debacle. And that they knew it would be going in. It's not like they thought that this was going to be a barn burner of a match. WCW would put on main events that they knew in advance would be bad, and they, but like they knew it would draw, so they just put it on anyway. Yeah. I mean, and I guess you can't really blame them. I mean, people bought it. That was the whole point. They made a bunch of money from it. It wasn't a work of art. I mean, even with, even with the limitations, I think they could have done better. I think blood weapons, I would have added more Gaga to this. Right. It's just, it's an interesting probably formula. More, probably more run-ins, too. Right. But it's they a cage some guys who can bump run out there. Yeah, but not a good one. <laughs> That's true. I would have loved to just have him come down and just like move the cage out of the way. Like it's rickety. We can just push it. <laughs> oh, I, that's another thing that shocks me is just how visually unappealing this cage is. It looks like shit. I, yeah, it's just gray bars, not even, you know, black bars or anything. It doesn't look kind of dangerous. It's just there. It's just this giant cage. It's just there. That's that's the best way to put to not only the cage, but also the match. Yeah, so just a, a terrible, terrible match to end what was, for the most part, a pretty good show. Yeah, I genuinely liked this show. Like, there were parts, much like all WCW shows from this era, there are, like, electrifying, super cool matches, and then just a bunch of nonsense that you can kind of laugh about, and then, good, and then, like, a main event chock full of stars. Like... It's sort of the perfect formula for a wrestling show that Eric Bischoff worked out. Like the opening matches are so good, you'll forgive anything. And then the, in the middle is just kind of silly. And then then come all the stars. Like that's kind yeah. of just how you put together a wrestling show. And it was a win in formula. And, you know, if this match, if the main event had been just kind of below average instead of terrible, like the usual WSW main event was just not good instead of you know absolutely horrible i would 
you know, say this was a great show, but instead I'll just say it was a solid B. Completely agree. Like it, it, it was good. It's not anywhere near like the top of the best shows that we've done, but it's, I mean, it's got an all-time classic match on it. Can't ask for much more than that from these. No, and it's historically, it's just a, a snapshot of a very hot period in history, and you can understand watching it why WCW was on fire. Hell yeah. Ooh, so anything else to add for this one? No, I think we uh, we just about did this one. I did love that uh, every single... Were all WCW pay-per-views from this era obviously sponsored by something, or is it just Halloween Havoc? Just that, Halloween Havoc. It's Slim Jim's Halloween Havoc. Yeah, because I'll always remember the 1998 was Snickers Halloween Havoc. Like it was just, it, yeah. it's like Halloween Havoc is the real Starcade, and Starcade is not really a big deal. It really, the thing is, especially um, Halloween Havoc 1998 compared to Starcade 1998. It's incredible how much better the card for Halloween Havoc is. It's fucking stacked, man. Yeah. So just off the top of my head, Halloween Havoc 98 has Hogan Warrior, Goldberg DDP, uh, Scott Hall against Kevin Nash, Rick Steiner against Scott Steiner, and Bret Hart against Sting. That's fucking crazy. And then Starcade is Nash and Goldberg, and none of the rest of those guys are on the show. Like, Hogan's not on the show, Brett's not on the show, Sting's not on the show. Literally, like, Bischoff-Flair is the semi-main yeah, event. Bischoff-Flair is, yeah, Bischoff-Flair, and I think DDP Giant was the other drawing match. Yeah, just, like, looking at this card, this is a garbage show. Yeah, um, it, Starcade was weird. Starcade 97 is, 90, 96 had Piper and Hogan, that was a big deal. So 96 and 97 were kind of the two years they sort of figured out Starcade, but they just after about '86, Starcade never meant what it should have. It was it never really felt anything like WrestleMania. Yeah, I think for the vast majority of Starcade's run, you could easily say that it was not the biggest show of the year, that of no. that particular year, and like no. that's crazy. It was usually Bash the Beach or Halloween Havoc. Yeah. I mean, and that's probably also partially because they always put Starcade in December, which never made any fucking sense to me because that's not your hot period. No, well, it was originally on Thanksgiving, and then the WWF uh, stole that with Survivor Series, so they moved it to December. Man, they should have just swapped, made Bash at the Beach the show. It it just, I don't understand why they didn't. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that wraps us for Starcade or um, Halloween Havoc '97. We'll kind of. We'll cover the next step, I think, in a few months. We'll do Starcade 97 in December, and I'm really excited yeah. uh, to talk about that. The, the, the most important show in WCW history, the, you know, the culmination of WCW. And one of the most important failures in the history of wrestling. Oh, an epic failure. Um, next week, we've got another show I'm really excited to talk about, which is Survivor Series 1992. Just the the beginning of the huge changes we would see in the WWF in 1992 and 1993, all of a sudden it's the new generation. And man, it's, it's come on like a flash. It's hard to believe like we did SummerSlam 92, not too long ago. This show feels wildly different, even from that. We're only talking a couple of months. Yeah. All of a sudden, you know, Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels have gone from two mid-carders to being in the main event 
and Brett's the world champion, Sean's the intercontinental champion. Weirdly, there's literally only one traditional Survivor Series match, and it's between a bunch of not particularly interesting people. Nope. And then we've got the wild saga of the Ultimate Warrior being fired again and completely screwing up this pay-per-view. Oh, boy. I can't wait to talk about that. Uh, what they deliver with Mr. Perfect, I think, is one of the great kind of improvisations in wrestling history, though. I agree. I definitely do. And it winds up being pretty interesting. And, like, there are some pretty good stories to go along with it. Yeah, you, it's one of those where it's hard to imagine how they could have, you know, kind of made better out of that situation. But we'll be able to cover all that next week. Oh, yeah. All right, so we'll have Survivor Series 1992 next week. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. We hope we see you again next week.